0: This morning, I mentioned this, uh, well, actually, originally, we were going to start this in October, but this past week, I just felt the Lord say, no, let's do it now. We've talked about this series that we were looking to begin. You can ask that, and it's going to be featured the third Sunday of every month as we move forward here for the next few months. Um we'll be talking excuse me we'll be taking a break from our study through first and second Samuel in order to address specific questions that you've shared questions that relate to life theology culture and apologetics the idea is to know and understand what God's word the bible has to say about the issues that you're wrestling with Uh, or in some cases, to better understand what the Bible itself says. We have a lovely graphic that goes with that, but I didn't put it in my notes to bring it up, and now it's going to come up in the next 15 seconds. Watch Count it off in your head. It will appear magically, and we'll all, in awe, go, ooh, that is so nice. Now... You may not have submitted a question yet, and if you haven't, you've still got time to do that, so I encourage you, write that question out, drop it in the offering tower, and uh, it'll it'll get put in the queue as one that will potentially address some of the questions. We're reworking a little bit to uh, to fit better, but we'd love to have your questions. Um, your input on this. Now, sometimes we can get to a place where because we don't have an answer or haven't explored a subject in, in in light of biblical truth that we question Christianity's position on a given subject, what the Bible seems to teach or say and we're we're tempted to accept the world's understanding answers or position. We get discouraged, Um, we give up, maybe we get uh, lost down some YouTube rabbit hole, sometimes fearful of researching or looking into a given issue, afraid that there won't be a sufficient answer in the Bible. And that can play out in a college philosophy classroom. Oh, there it is. All right, let's give a hand to the media department. God bless you. They just created that graphic while we were waiting. No, I'm kidding. It was already there. But thank you. Maybe it's a comparative religions class. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was always. It, it always happened in our English class. The uh, the teachers seemed to have an agenda of dismantling the faith of their students. Two teachers, in particular, I still remember them fondly. Um, Maybe it's through a conversation with a coworker or a friend. Now, the wrestling isn't the problem with questions and things we don't understand or challenges to our faith or some particular belief. It's the giving up or the giving in, taking their word for it, surrendering to whatever the opposition is. And not doing the hard work of digging in to understand what it is that God's word has to say on a given subject or topic. What the reasonable thought process is behind a given position or doctrine. We have to choose and learn to ask, to think, to research, study, and wrestle. And my hope is, the vision behind this series is not only to answer questions, but also to inspire that very thing in each of our hearts and minds. That, that, that we wouldn't just take someone else's word for it, that you wouldn't just take my word for it, but that we would, we would seek these things out ourselves. That we would do the research, the homework, uh, that we would be students of the word in that regard. What's really important to understand is that you and I serve a God who invites questions. There are different religious movements out there that uh, are are, uh, very, very anti that position. Some even go so far as to prohibit questioning that which is taught. But the God of the Bible is not afraid of the issues that are out there, the things that you may be wrestling with. God wants to engage our minds, and it should be a huge part of our faith. Remember these words of Jesus in answer to a question from the, the religious leaders. It's found in Matthew 22 verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, a scribe, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment or the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So what is the the great or the greatest commandment, according to Jesus? It's to love God. And Jesus makes clear that it happens in three ways with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with our mind. You and I are to love God with all of our minds. God has called you and I, his children, to be a thinking people, to express our love and adoration of him, at least in part through the intellect that he's given us. Paul wrote to the Roman believers that we are to actively seek to submit and surrender our minds to God in worship and service to him. That, that process, it changes us such that we understand and know both God and his will better. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we read, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The mind can't be neglected in our worship and service to God, in, in our understanding and knowing him. In our loving Him, we are called to use our minds. Now, while each you can ask that Sunday, the third Sunday of each month for the next few months, we'll be looking at several questions from different categories. My, my goal is to establish a theme for each Sunday morning, all right? And so today's message is titled, Trust and Obey, Keep It Simple, Because more or less, each of today's three questions happen to come down to the basic principle that faith-filled obedience is what matters most. Obeying God's instruction to us personally, responding to the truth that he's revealed to us and the gospel message itself. For our first question, we're drawing directly on last week's message. And as this is a question related to the Bible, we find it in the category of theology. That is the study of God, his ways, and his words. So question number one, which was submitted by someone in this church body, is why does David's sparing of Moab, why was David's sparing of Moab acceptable, but for Saul to spare some of the Amalekites, it was sin? It's a good question. So, of course, what we're asking is, was this a double standard? Is God capricious in his choosing of when to enforce his rules? Was he playing favorites? What is the difference between what Saul did and what David did? Well, you'll remember what happened last week with David, maybe. We touched on it briefly. He was focused on expanding Israel's borders Uh, ...into all those places that God had promised Israel was theirs. Well, among those nations he warred against were the Moabites who lived in the south. And here's what was recorded for us at the very beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 8 in verse 2. Then he, David, defeated Moab... Forcing them down to the ground, he measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. So clearly, some of them were spared and some of them were not. But there were definitely those that lived that David allowed to continue living and serving now Israel and paying tribute. Yet... God's judgment against King Saul hinged on something that was very similar. You could argue that he did the same thing. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 2, first we have God's instruction to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So God told Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites in judgment for an incident referenced here and originally recorded in Exodus chapter 17. It happened hundreds of years before first Samuel 15 when Israel was being delivered from slavery in Egypt they they passed the region where Moab was and in that moment the Moabites they they took advantage of the Israelites their their rear guard you might say which was kind of non-existence they went after and exploited the elderly and the young the weak and the vulnerable and we read of that actually in Deuteronomy chapter 18 Verse 25, it was a malicious way, eight, excuse me, Deuteronomy 25 verse 18, it was a particularly malicious way to attack God's people during a time when he was trying to deliver them. They were defenseless, and for this cruelty, the Amalekites came under God's judgment, but it didn't happen immediately, which kind of causes us to scratch our heads God God looked at what happened and, and what the Amalekites did, and he said, judgment is coming against them, but it would be eventual. David was instructed by God in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was, excuse me, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So God, all these hundreds of years after what happened in Exodus 17, tells King Saul, now is time for judgment to be meted out against the Amalekites, and so Saul goes to war against them. But as we just read, he spared the best of everything that belonged to them, and in particular, their king, Agag. We read that he was unwilling to do what God had called him to do. He spared what he thought made sense, the spoils in the king himself, probably as a trophy And when confronted about this by the prophet Samuel, Saul tried to argue his partial obedience was good enough and that he intended to give to the Lord at least some of what he spared. 1 Samuel 15 verses 20 through 23. So Samuel said in response to Saul making excuses for his disobedience and his unwillingness to obey the Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of lambs. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from becoming king. Simply, God had given to Saul very specific instructions. The comparing of those two accounts makes that kind of obvious. The Amalekites were not to be spared, and yet Saul chose the best of the treasure and the king, and we would assume others as well, as they survived as a people beyond that time. One of which, the descendants, is particularly noteworthy. We just studied and talked about him on Wednesday nights in the Old Testament study. Haman of the book of Esther was a descendant of Agag. Partial obedience is disobedience. And for Saul, this was not a one-time slip-up. It was a pattern. He'd made a habit of rejecting the word of the Lord. For David's part, though, what took place in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, he did what he was supposed to. He'd been given no specific instructions, as had Saul. And it should be added that when David made a mistake, he tended to respond quickly to God's Discipline. Now, some people groups Israel was instructed to wage war against, others to live alongside of, depending on God's purposes and plans. In fact, He told them prior to their entering the promised land. the land of the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. I skip the Amorites, by the way. They're related to the Amalekites. Seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, You shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. There were these people groups who were so utterly wicked and sinful, disgusting, and destructive in their behaviors as a people that God said, enough is enough. They need to be wiped out completely. And we may read that and very well, perhaps reasonably say, wow, that just seems unbelievable that God would say that of those people. Why was is this Well, part of the reason God reveals, in addition to their extreme wickedness, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. This is speaking of the, the Egyptians, that Israel as a family would be led there, where they would then grow into many millions, And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge as they did. Afterwards, as God did through Moses, afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. Verse 16, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's very, something very interesting there about that verse. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's as though there's a, a, a vessel that's being filled. And it wasn't time yet for God to act out in judgment against the Amorites. And, and I would argue collectively as well the other people groups that were there in the area. And it was for a very specific reason, different from what we might imagine, especially when we're speaking in the context of God's judgment. Why would he wait so long to judge a people? Well, the New Testament actually gives us some clues at that, doesn't it? It tells us, in fact, that, that are waiting and looking for Christ's return, that that his patience is actually his long-suffering, That that God is actually looking to see more respond to his mercy. And that was exactly the case with these people that would eventually be judged. These Canaanites that were living in the land that God would use Israel as an instrument of his judgment against. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. These descendants of Esau, again, who were closely related to the the Amalekites, that is the Amorites... Of Genesis chapter 15, that Abraham or that Saul was instructed to destroy. They they were marked out for judgment hundreds of years before, for great evil in their idolatry, but uh, as well for other sin. But during the days of Abraham, it was not yet time. God wanted to wait 400 more years. That's pretty merciful, isn't it? We focus on the moment of judgment through Saul, and we think, oh, that's so unreasonable. And yet the reality is 400 years preceded this in which God was looking to see the people repent. It was hundreds of years that the people had an opportunity to turn from their sin, their hatred for Israel, to respond to God's witness of himself. So what did that witness look like? Because we might think, well, wait a minute. God gave his law to to the people of Israel. He revealed himself, and it's not like they were sending missionaries out. How would the Canaanites even know? How would the Amalekites know about the God of the Bible or his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his desire for them to repent? We don't know exactly, but we know what we do know is that God has and is revealing himself in many creative ways. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, we're told that he uses creation, that that he uses the conscience that, that he's designed us with and most clearly through the commandments in the New Testament age to lead us to the Christ. But he also used and uses something else, his own faithfulness and power. When Israel was delivered miraculously from egypt by god the nation left decimated for theirs and pharaoh's hardness and rebellion did other nations hear about it after israel was delivered from slavery in egypt and all the wonderful things that god did on their behalf What about when they were led by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night? Or when God opened the Jordan River and led uh, Israel across under Joshua's leadership? Well, let's let Rahab from the city of Jericho testify as to whether or not God's witness of himself had reached the region's people. Far beyond and outside of the land of Egypt or the Sinai Peninsula. She spoke these words to the spies who came into the city prior to the battle in Joshua chapter 2. Verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That sounds like the testimony of someone who knew the God of Israel. And yet it wasn't. This was, this was a heathen woman in the most profound sense living in Jericho who is simply speaking with spies from the nation of Israel who are preparing to attack and, and subdue her city and yet god saw fit to make sure that his witness of himself made it to her and to everyone in the city they all knew about the god of israel now knowledge of god's power and judgment brings one of two results fear and hardness or humility and repentance and many chose choose excuse me the former but rahab chose the latter For hundreds of years, God had been working to draw these peoples to himself. And some did respond, whether we want to go all the way back to thinking about the prophet Jonah and and the city of Nineveh, to the mixed multitude that left Egypt with Israel, to Rahab and many others. God worked to reach the lost outside of Israel before judgment. That's his heart. And the bottom line is that David obeyed God and had the latitude to spare some of his enemies as he was not under specific instructions to wipe them all out, nor had God asked Israel to do that in regards to Moab. They were a different people and they were not under judgment in the same way as the Amalekites. Saul, on the other hand, was given a direct command that these were so wicked and had been given centuries to repent but refused, and they instead were to be destroyed. The question for us is, are we making excuses or are we obeying God's clearly revealed will? Do we find ourselves in the camp of, Of Saul, or are we living like a David? Because still today, to obey is better than sacrifice. God is interested in hearts that are yielded to him, not religious works offered up to make amends for our rebellion. Now, on to our second Question, which is also theological in nature, but this one is not about a specific Bible passage. It's more general. Question number two Are there sins that God will not forgive? Inevitably, most Christians have reached or will uh, reach a point in their walk with Christ where they've wondered whether or not God would forgive them for a certain sin. I would venture to say every single one of us, if we've not asked this question, we've thought it uh, when asking the Lord to forgive us or cleanse us from something that we've done for the umpteenth time. Would he forgive us, will he forgive us again for a sin that's been committed Before, is there a limit to God's mercy and grace in our lives? I think a lot of people today struggle under a weight of guilt and shame, feeling condemned. For many, this manifests in our culture, certainly in the church as well, but in addictive behaviors, self destructive choices and cycles, depression, and other disorders. We feel guilty and so we punish ourselves. Sometimes subconsciously. The weight and the burden of our sin, believed to be unforgiven, is overwhelming. And again, we live under condemnation. But the Bible teaches that God offers forgiveness, that Jesus was actually punished on the cross in our place for our guilt. So the question is does that sacrifice have any limit? Are there any boundaries to God's forgiveness to what the blood of Jesus can cover? And so we ask, are there unforgivable sins? Are there certain acts that are simply too much? Can we exhaust God's mercy and forgiveness? And I have in circles within the church had heard many answers to this question, most of which were incorrect. People that named specific sins and said that sin cannot be forgiven. Let's take a moment and review and remind ourselves as to exactly what the Bible says and teaches about forgiveness. John the Baptist first identified Jesus saying in John 129, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Takes away sounds pretty thorough. Paul taught this explicitly and wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Again, there's no prerequisite here for forgiveness apart from repentance and faith. No limits or boundaries expressed. The Apostle John in his epistle wrote in 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus again and again in his ministry declared sins forgiven. To the paralytic in Mark 2, Jesus before physically healing him said, son, your sins are forgiven you. When in Luke 2, the notoriously sinful woman broke the alabaster flask of perfume and anointed Jesus' feet in her brokenness and humility, he told her, your sins are forgiven. To the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, Jesus, to this one who deserved to be stoned, said instead, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Multiple parables of Jesus' focus on the subject of forgiveness. It's a huge theme. But are there those sins that are simply too bad? Or are there sins that come with a limit attached, like a punch card, in terms of how many times a person can be forgiven? Where we present it before the Lord, and he's like, I'm sorry, you've used it up. My grace. Well, the Bible is clear that there is no such limit on God's forgiveness. And while we won't delve into this deeply, we should be clear that when a man or a woman places their faith in Christ, their sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Because as we speak this morning in terms of sins being forgiven that are confessed and repented of, I want to be clear that for God's people, it probably would be impossible to note every sin you've ever committed and repent of it before the Lord specifically that you might be forgiven. When you come to Christ, the blood of Jesus covers all of your guilt and his righteousness is gifted. It's imputed to you as a gift. So don't misunderstand that what we're saying this morning is uh, I'm forgiven in so much as I remember to confess everything. I'm in trouble if that's the case. I'm 47 years old and I know that there are hundreds if not thousands of sins that I have not confessed before the Lord. And I've put lots of blankets out there just in case, you know, Lord. (laughs) Sins of youth and foolish things I've said and done that I I can't even recall and, and I've forgotten about. Paul writes in Romans that our justification, sanctification, and glorification, the three parts of our salvation, he, he writes of them in the past tense. That they're being worked out in the present, but from eternity's perspective, it's, it's done. Paul says we're glorified. It's as though we're already seated in the heavenlies. We're, we're sanctified. God sees the work as done in so much as he sees us through his son. Clearly, it's it's being Worked out daily in our lives as we're learning to walk in the Spirit and and submit to, trust, and and obey God. Our justification, it was completed in the past at the cross, in the present, as we surrender our lives to Christ. And it will be fully realized in in heaven itself. All those aspects. But as Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. Our redemption, it, it is entirely accomplished. I Forgetting to confess a particular sin uh, does not mean it's it's not forgiven because having trusted in Christ and, and repented, his blood has covered that guilt. However, the one sin that he sadly cannot forgive is that sin that is never confessed from the life of one who refuses to humble themselves before him. The non-believer who in hardness of heart and mind passes from this life into eternity, apart from God's mercy and grace, that one cannot be forgiven. There is no purgatory. There is no second chance. Only hell and judgment await Jesus clearly addressed that sin that cannot be forgiven. We refer to it as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Jesus spoke these words, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Context is important here in understanding what Jesus is talking about. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had just accused Jesus of having cast out a demon by the power of Satan. They refused to acknowledge that he was, in fact, sent from God, and so they, in their hardness of heart, chose to believe he was from the devil. But they knew better, which was the real Issue. They knew who he was, but in pride, rebellion, and sin, they chose to deny him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Jesus, later in speaking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, said in John 16, verse 8, And when he comes... He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit's work in the world is to convict of sin, to draw men and women to Jesus. To reject that working is to reject God's witness of himself. What the religious leaders were doing in Mark chapter 3 was refusing the working of God in their lives. To the degree that they were in danger of becoming so entrenched in that position that it would be difficult and even impossible to return from. A person cannot endlessly say no to God. A man or a woman cannot spend their lives resisting the work of God's spirit in their lives without a cost or consequence the real and actual danger is that they would die in their sin pass from this life never having humbled themselves never having repented never having responded to the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives and in their hearts never having humbled themselves repented and trusting uh, trusted Christ for forgiveness and salvation that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to reject God until it is too late, which sadly can come before death. No one knows when that line in their heart has been crossed. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's not uttering words. It's not simply taking God's name in vain. It's, it's something far more profound than that. It's an expression of the heart and the mind in choosing to reject the reality of who God is in revealing himself. You simply become so hardened to the working of God that you no longer hear his voice, and it is too late. We don't like to think about that, but it's a reality. There are men and women today in that place of torment who lived this very way who rejected the gospel to their own peril. That's why it's so important that we respond today to the call to repent and be saved, not delaying the working of God in our lives. For the believer, for the Christian, God's forgiveness knows no bounds. There are no limits. I love how the psalmist, even in the Old Testament, understood God's merciful forgiveness. In Psalm 103, verse 2, we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Verse 11, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The bottom line... The only sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin that's never confessed from the life of the non-believer. The question for us is, why are we remaining outside of the grace and mercy of God? His forgiveness is freely offered. The Christian is no longer condemned. Freedom from guilt and shame is ours. We simply, in faith, need to take hold of it romans chapter 8 verse 1 we read there there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit now finally our last question for the morning is related to theology apologetics in a sense culture question number three Are there, excuse me, number three, boy, I feel like my tongue is just tied this morning. I'm I'm all thrown off from not being in Samuel, I tell you. Question number three. Are the Jewish people saved by virtue of their Judaism or having been a part of God's chosen people? In other words, will their race or ethnicity and special relationship to God as a nation save them apart from faith in Christ? Of all the New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul deals with this question most directly. In this particular passage, he outlines what must happen for a man or a woman to be saved, stating in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse verse 11, For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no distinction or difference, we just read, between Jew and Gentiles or non-Jews. God shows no partiality. All must come to him through faith in the risen Christ. No one is redeemed apart from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his vicarious or substitutionary atonement. Paul goes further earlier in Romans for those wondering if, in fact, the Jews have any benefit at all in being Jews. Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. I mean, if they have to be saved just like us, are they in any way different? Does Israel even matter? Well, they do. As God's chosen people, those through whom the Messiah came, they were also entrusted with his covenant in written form. They were given the law, the prophets, the books of poetry and history. That's a big deal, a huge advantage. Of course, it's, it's only beneficial if you take advantage of it, but the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures we have today are because of God's people, Israel, Israel. The Septuagint is virtually the same first half of the Bible that Jesus had in his day that we have today. Many of the New Testament writers themselves were Jews who had converted to Christianity. The scriptures were were written and preserved in the context of a Jewish church. There are many benefits, of course, to being a part of God's chosen people. Considering that many Jews have rejected their Messiah, Paul writes further in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, because through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches to the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness Paul wrote expecting and anticipating that the gospel going to the Gentiles would most definitely have the effect of provoking the Jews to reconsider Jesus and eventually be saved in the near term, but also in fulfillment of prophecy and in the end times themselves. So God has worked tremendously through the Jews and Israel as a nation, but he isn't finished. While speaking with Nicodemus in John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The bottom line is that regardless of a person's ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, genetics, religion, bad works, or good, in order to be saved, they must be born again. One must recognize their need for a Savior, their need to repent and trust in Christ's work on their behalf on the cross. The question for us is, first, have we responded personally to the gospel? And secondly, are we being faithful to share that message with those around us, whether they're Jewish or not? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8... We read that knowledge puffs up, but that love edifies. The goal in attempting to understand some of these questions that we're looking at, and I realize this morning our questions have been more of a a serious nature. I don't know if there's going to be funny questions, but we'll try. (laughs) They won't all all have the same heaviness to them necessarily. It's it's been kind of weighted towards judgment and, and death and hell today. But we have to talk about those things and understand them rightly, don't we? Because there are large segments of the church today that not only are unwilling to speak to this reality or are uncomfortable with them, but but either don't understand or don't believe them to the peril of our world and culture today because a church that doesn't believe in hell, a church that rejects the exclusivity of the claims of Christ, a church that doesn't understand the gospel is a church that not only doesn't send missionaries, but, but doesn't walk across the street to talk to people that that may not know the Savior or understand that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. See, there's a church today that's focused on good works but not not on the reality of a good savior there's there's a church today that that understands aspects of the sayings of Jesus that that make maybe for better living but not for walking ...by faith and seeking to change a world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has called us to something very different. He's called us to be men and women of the book. People who understand and live the gospel. And so that's my apology, non-apology for kind of a serious message... ...that was a little bit heavier. But I do want to encourage you that our questions will go in lots of different directions. And the purpose and the goal is not that you and I would be taken with our own ability to understand and answer every hard question or be quick to say, well, I know what that means or what that doesn't mean. It's to edify. It's, it's to build others up, to encourage, to be used by God and to grow ourselves. And that takes not only faith, but work. We've got to trust and obey An author I read wrote that a student once asked the president of his school if there was a course he could take that was shorter than the one prescribed. Oh, yes, replied the president, but it depends on what you want to be. When God wants to make an oak, he takes 100 years. But when he wants to make a squash, he only takes six months. I've met a lot of squashy Christians they don't want to do the hard work. They don't want to be disciplined in their faith. And man, sadly, I know you've this grief as well. They've, many of them, some of them, I can think of specific people who have suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith, people my wife and I have pleaded with. Study the scriptures, read the Bible, take the time every day, just that basic step of giving the Lord the opportunity to feed your soul, to, to that you would be nourished, uh, on the milk and the meat of the word. Oh, I, I I, just can't. I don't read the Bible. I don't understand the Bible. You're, you're, you're going to become spiritually malnourished. You're, you're going to be attacked, and you will not be equipped, and you will fail. And it happens all the time. People who come up against a, a subject, a question, some some complexity, some cultural question, and, and, and they don't understand, and, and the answers that are provided out there seem to make sense, and it's easier, and it feels better to just take that perspective, and so they do, rather than doing the hard work of like our junior highs and high schoolers taking a weekend and saying, you know what, I'm going to invest, I'm going to listen to what other thinking men and women have discovered in, in God's word and in experience, Some of us can be guilty of being a little bit lazy. We're lax in spiritual disciplines. But God wants us to grow, to go deeper. He wants to build us into an oak. But we've got to abandon spiritual childishness to get there. Exercise the discipline to pick up a book or listen to it on Audible, all right? I Personally, I do better when I actually look at words typed on actual paper because it's a slower process and I remember it better, but, but I'm no condemnation if you're an audible person, all right? Just do something, okay? Get it in there. Spend time in the book, in the Word of God to purpose, to walk in obedience, to trust and obey. It's, it's simple, but it requires effort. Don't overcomplicate it. But we also don't want to be guilty of not studying to show ourselves approved unto God. Why don't you stand with me? We'll pray. Father, I pray that, Lord, you would equip us, Lord, to be men and women Lord, who are ready to give an answer, a defense for the hope that lies within us with meekness and humility, Lord. God, that we wouldn't retreat in fear from arguments that we don't understand or subjects that seem contradictory. God, that we we wouldn't give up On reading your word because some aspects of it maybe don't make sense to us yet but that we would remember to pray and ask God that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your law God that we would have the humility to ask that you by your Holy Spirit would give us understanding God that you would help us to take advantage of the multitude of resources we're surrounded by today Conferences and radio programs and podcasts and, and books and books, uh, Lord, audio books. Well, we can get ourselves in trouble with, with too much learning and, and, and trying to be impressed with ourselves, but the opposite is just as bad, if not worse. Lord, that we would dig in and, and before and above all else, that, Father, we would nourish ourselves on your word that that we would be diligent about diligent about our own soul care before you waiting on you listening to your voice that God we might be equipped to share your living word with those around us because it's your word not our opinion not our experience that does not return void it goes out and it accomplishes what you send it out to do so father would you, would you fill us, baptize us afresh in the power of your Holy Spirit? God, give us an, an appetite for your word, but also, God, an, an excitement and a commitment to, to finding and sharing answers, Lord. In, in a culture and in a context that doesn't know you, doesn't understand you, some of whom aren't seeking you. Give us boldness. Give us clarity, Father. Would you be at work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure? In Jesus' name.